Section sixty two of the Living Animals of the World, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Living Animals of the World, Volume One, Mammals, by Charles Lewis Cornish, Editor. The Phalanges. The Phalanger family of marsupials, which next invites attention is constituted of animals especially adapted to lead an arboreal life, though among themselves they exhibit very considerable structural variations. The species usually placed at the head of this group is the essentially droll and in many respects abnormal form known as the koala, or Australian native bear. Its little podgy tailless body, short thick-set head, and round tufted ears lend some countenance perhaps to the ursine analogy, but there the likeness ends. The koala is limited in its distribution to the southeastern region of the Australian continent, and is there found inhabiting the loftiest gum trees, on the leaves and flowers of which it almost exclusively feeds. Compared with the opossum and squirrel-like phalanges, the koala is a very slow and sedentary little animal, remaining stationary in and browsing upon the leaves of the same gum tree for days or even weeks at a stretch. Taking advantage of this homestaying propensity, examples are established, with full liberty to wander at will among the large gum trees, in the Melbourne Zoological Gardens, and have never abused the confidence reposed in them by surreptitiously absconding. The young koalas in particular make the most droll and delightful of household pets, speedily becoming attached to and following their owners about the premises or contentedly settling down to the possession of an allotted corner of the veranda, in which an improvised perch has been erected, and a constant supply of its favourite gum leaves is daily assured. One such example, kept in Brisbane, Queensland, furnished the writer with the material for the photograph on this page. Also of another one that illustrated in an interesting manner the very singular attitude assumed by the animal when asleep. Instead of creeping into the hollow trunk or spout of a gum or other tree, as the opossums and other phalanges are wont to do, the little bear simply sticks tight to his supporting branch and, tucking in his head and ears and limbs, converts himself into an apparently homogeneous rounded mass of fur or moss, and, thus disguised, peacefully sleeps. Seen at some little distance, in fact, none but a trained eye could distinguish this sleeping bear from one of the round woody excrescences, or bunches of mistletoe-like parasitic growths that are of common occurrence on the trees in every gum forest. In this way the little creature secures immunity from the attacks of enemies by mimicking the characteristic peculiarities of its environment, as obtained so generally among insects and other of the lower orders of animated nature. A closely analogous sleeping attitude, it may be mentioned, is assumed by one of the African lemurs or pottos, which have been dealt with in a previous chapter. Although in captivity the koala takes kindly to a mixed diet, in which bread and milk and fruit may form substantial elements, it can rarely be induced to altogether dispense with its customary gum leaf regimen, and it is this circumstance that mainly accounts for its rarity in European menageries. Time and again, however, this interesting animal has put in an appearance at the Regent's Park. But in spite of Kew Gardens and other sources being laid under contribution for a supply of gum tree leaves, its sojourn there has been but brief, 
As a matter of fact, the common or blue gum tree, which is alone cultivated and available in any quantity in this country, and which is indigenous to Tasmania, is not the species on which the koala is accustomed to feed. Of gum trees there are some hundred species, each one differing in the peculiarity of its aromatic scent and flavour, and having its special clientele among the ranks of leaf-browsing animals. So far as the writer's observations extended, it was the big Queensland white and swamp gums that were especially patronised by the Australian bears, and these are not grown in England. Although at first sight, and normally so far as the younger individuals are concerned, the koala would appear to represent the most perfect embodiment of peace and goodwill among mammals, he is accredited at a maturer age, when crossed in love or goaded to resentment by some other cause, to give way to fits of ungovernable rage. These temporary lapses are, however, very transient, and our little friend soon recovers his customary bland placidity. While it is being threshed out, nevertheless, the burden of song delivered by rival claimants for a partner's favours is a remarkable phenomenon. The circumstance that the vocal duet is commonly executed high up among the branches of the loftiest gums no doubt adds very considerably to both the timbre of the music and the distance to which it is carried. The old-time phrase of making the welkin ring would undoubtedly have been applied with alacrity and singular appropriateness by the poets of the departed century to the love song of the koala, had they been privileged to hear it. Among the examples of the koala which have been in residence at the zoo, one of them came to a pathetic end. As told to the writer by Mr. A. D. Bartlett, the late superintendent, it appears that the little animal, on exhibition in the gardens during the day, was brought into the house at night, and allowed the run of a room which, among other furniture, included a large swing-looking glass. One morning the little creature was found crushed to death beneath the mirror, upon which it had apparently climbed and overbalanced. The information that the animal was a female evoked the suspicion that personal vanity and the admiration of its own image in the glass had some share encompassing its untimely end. Possibly, however, it hailed in the reflection the welcome advent of a companion to share its lone banishment from the land of the gum tree, and in its efforts to greet it thus came to grief. The female koala produces but one cub at a time. At an early period after its birth this is transferred to its mother's back, and is thus transported until its dimensions are about one half of those of its parent. The pair as shown in the illustration on page 355 presents, under these conditions, an essentially grotesque aspect. It is a noteworthy circumstance that, compared with the male, the female koala is but rarely to be observed wandering abroad during broad daylight. As with the typical phalanges, food is consumed chiefly at night or during the brief Australian twilight hours. While the male at certain periods, more especially the months of March and April, is much in evidence in daytime to both the senses of sight and hearing, as attested to on a previous page, the female spends the whole or greater portion of the day clinging as an inert sleeping mass to a convenient branch. Bear shooting in Australia, as might be anticipated from the description here given of the animal's habits and temperament, affords but sorry sport. It may further be remarked that those who have shot at and only disabled one of these inoffensive little creatures are scarcely likely to repeat the experiment. The cry of a wounded koala has been aptly compared to that of a distressed child 
but still more pathetic. When fatally shot, it also more frequently than otherwise clings tenaciously back downwards, like the South American sloths to the supporting tree branch, and is thus frequently irrecoverable. With the non-sentimental Australian furrier, the koala's pelt of soft, crisp, ashy grey fur is unfortunately in considerable demand, being made up mostly, with the quaint round head and tufted ears intact, into, it must be confessed, singularly attractive and warm rugs. The correspondence of the koala in form and habits to the sloths, among the higher mammalia, has been previously mentioned. The parallelism might be pursued in yet another direction. In earlier times, the small tree-inhabiting South American sloths were supplemented by ground-frequenting species, such as the Megatherium, which were of comparatively titanic proportions. The epoch of the accredited existence of these huge ground sloths was so comparatively recent, the later tertiaries, that it is even yet not regarded as altogether improbable that some existing representative of the race may yet be discovered in the fastnesses of the South American forests, and thus claim a niche in the pages of a subsequent edition of Living Animals. In a like manner, the little sloth-like tree-frequenting Australian bear had his primeval ground-dwelling colossi, and there is yet a lurking hope among enthusiastic zoologists that some surviving scion of the little koala's doughty forebears may yet turn up in the practically unexplored central Australian wildernesses. Some such anticipations, as a matter of fact, stimulated the hopes and aspirations of the participators in one of the latest of these exploring expeditions, which, while not successful in this instance in obtaining so great a prize, secured for science that most interesting and previously unknown marsupial mammal, the pouched mole. End of section 62. Recording by Julian Prattley.